0: All right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. I hope you are all well. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood here in Anywhere USA. I'm so beyond stoked that it's spring. Anywho, I thank you for lending me your ears yet again. I know that you can listen to anyone, and I am so grateful that you choose me. Thank you also for spreading the word about the podcast and helping build the listenership. With that being said, you know what time it is. It's time to say thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout out time. Thank you for tuning in. Council, Boise, Pocatello, Sandpoint, and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. How is everyone in Silver Springs, Middleton, Baltimore, Hagerstown, and Upper Marlboro, Maryland? Welcome back. Spirit Lake, Waterloo, West Des Moines, Milford, and Clinton, Iowa. Hi, Fargo, Wilmington, Iowa and Dover, Delaware. Greetings and salutations to Morocco, Namibia, Belgium, Australia, Chile, and Cambodia. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your likes, shares, and subscribes. Do not forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group and follow all of the social accounts that can be found in the description box below with my references per usual. So, last episode, which was literally just last week, I discussed the murders of three young girls attending Girl Scouts camp in Oklahoma. Damn, that was a really sad one, right? Today, I'm going to tell you something super sad and gruesome. Yeah, I guess that would be the best word to describe it. Today, I'll be discussing what had happened when a husband in Connecticut rented a wood chipper to do more than landscaping. Okay. You guys know the story? <laughs> Even if you do, I don't care. Hush. Be quiet. Here we go. Hella. Yeah, that's how they were saying it there on the forensic files. Fun fact, it was literally their pilot episode. Okay. Hella Lork-Nielsen was born July 7, 1947, in Charlotte, Lund, Denmark. An only child, Hella grew up in a village north of Denmark. Hella was described as a bright child with a vibrant personality. Hella excelled in school and easily made friends. By the time Hella was a teenager, the brilliant girl had learned French and English while also being able to understand German, Norwegian, and Swedish. Look at her go. After high school, Hella moved to England where she attended university. By the time Hella was 20, she was working and living in France as an au pair strikingly beautiful and charming charming hella met all the criteria to become a stewardess and yes stewardess totally different from a flight attendant the job description is so different from back then for capital airways while working for capital she was able to travel to places like africa you know out of brussels and frankfurt when Hella learned that Pan Am World Airways was hiring stewardesses out of Copenhagen, out of the 200 applicants, she was one of the eight selected to train in Miami. So, having previous experience as a stewardess for Capital Airlines, Hella excelled, finishing first in her class. While training in Miami, Hella resided in a motel located near the airport where basically like the crew staff, you know, they, they maintained like crew rooms there or they stayed there quite often. So the bulk of the people in that particular motel were flight crew. So... While fraternization was frowned upon, many of the pilots and stewardesses indulged in liaisons, of course, you know, it's hot and sexy. A friend said that while Hella wasn't promiscuous or one to kiss and tell, she had a few lovers. Hella was at the motel on May 24th, 1969, waiting for a flight when her life would change. Oh my goodness. It was on that day that 21-year-old Hella met 31-year-old pilot Richard Crafts. So, Richard Crafts was born on December 20th, 1937. The third and final child for Mr. and Mrs. John Crafts, a successful Manhattan businessman. Richard and his older sisters would end up growing up. In Darien, Connecticut, one of the state's most affluent communities. While at school, Richard was like an average ish student, you know, he kind of, you know, eh, his way through school, you know, I'm sure that was probably something that kind of irritated the parental units considering the affluent area in which dad worked so hard to get them into. As well as the private schools and stuff, but after high school graduation, Richard attended college briefly again, where he ended his way before dropping out and joining the Marine Corps in 1956. Yep, so he went down to Paris Island, South Carolina, simplify. While in the Marines, Richard gravitated towards the Air Wing. I was also in the wing. Double simper, but not to this guy. Proficient in piloting helicopters. Totally didn't do that. I worked on paperwork, administrative hands, administrative hands. Richard trained on fixed-wing aircraft. In 1958, he was certified as a pilot and then stationed in Japan and Korea, where he also flew missions for Air Amer, the Air America branch, which is a branch of the CIA. After like nearly a decade in Southeast Asia. Richard returned to America in 1966. It would take 2 years before Richard would be able to lock in a stable pilot job when he was hired by Eastern Airlines. While he may have like, you know, seemed rough around the edges, Richard definitely had no problems in the dating department, especially amongst the stewardesses. Also, he was married, or engaged, whatever, he was engaged. Although he was also not as well put together, so to speak, he had charisma, and I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The sex appeal he exuded that allowed him to pull all the pretty ladies came from being able to say that he was once a Marine. I swear you don't question or doubt me for a second because I know what I am talking about was born into this core, and I became one, so I know what the superpowers are, and I know that the power of pulling hot people at a bar is one of them, even if you are, like, mediocre or average. And that's not to say that Richard was average, but, like, compared to Hella, he was, eh. By 1969, Richard was engaged to Mary when he met Hella. The two were like fire and ice. They dated on and off for years. While Hella's friends thought that she could do better, see, I really didn't want to say Hella better, but yeah, do better. Hella was content with Richard, evidently. And in 1975, when the couple became pregnant, they wed the same year in New Hampshire. 1976. The newlyweds bought a ranch-style home in Newton, Connecticut, which would grow to become literally like the neighborhood eyesore. So settling into becoming a wife and mother, Hella stopped working for a little bit and focused on not only taking care of her children, but being her asshole husband's punching bag. There, I said it. That's, that part's not unscripted, evidently. But neighbors and Hella alike were mortified by the random collection of landscaping equipment in the yard, which included things like a tractor, mowers. There was a $25,000 unused backhoe and other heavy equipment strewn amongst the yard. Some of the equipment was resting and or in need of repair. Or the shit just didn't work period. The home was also in a constant cycle of, so like neighbors would say that the place looked like it either needed repairs or it was having repairs done to it, but like there was never a cease, you know, they never stopped basically. It was just a shit show cycle over there. So, Richard was also an avid gun lover and collector, and he argued constantly with Hella over his coveted arsenal that he was amassing. He was also violent as shit and totally emotionally abusive. During her first pregnancy, Hella told a friend she'd never forgive Richard for how he treated her and what he put her through with the first pregnancy. One can only begin to imagine how he treated her during that time. Concealer, sunglasses, long sleeves and pants couldn't hide the bruises from the physical abuse. But to top all of that off after the three children were born, Richard began, like, spending more and more—I mean, he's still a pilot, but he was spending, like, way more time away from home on top of beating the shit out of her. And so, the thing was this. Hella wasn't stupid. She knew that Richard was carrying on extramarital, you know, affairs throughout their relationship as a married couple and that he was playing the field— prior to them becoming the crafts okay so their entire relationship this was probably a bone of contention for one because again her friends all thought that she could do better and be something that was just a continuous thread so this was nothing new but like he started like acting like super funky Then, in 1982, Richard became a part-time auxiliary police officer in Newton. So while he wasn't paid for his position, he took the job like super duper, do you need my assistance? Seriously. Like, he was super gung-ho. Like, he would hang out on his off time around the station and at times, like, respond to calls whilst off-duty, okay? Like, Farva on steroids. In 1986, the town of Southbury hired him. Richard was still a pilot for Eastern Airlines at the time and used his own money to pay for his training as his new job only paid him, like, $7 per hour, and then he also purchased a 1985 Crown Vic that he had fitted. Oh, that's a Victoria, by the way. For those that I don't want to am in cars, but okay, A Ford Crown Victoria, whatever. He had fitted with radios, lights, antennas, and sirens like the Connecticut State Police. So while Hella was very aware of her husband's philandering, as I said before. She was tired of keeping up appearances and worn down from the weight of her ridiculous fucking marriage. In the summer of 1986, Hella retained not only a divorce attorney, but also a private investigator. And so, like, the private investigator followed Richard around, snapped some picky pics, And of course he was carrying on a relationship with a stewardess um, who lived in a different location. And you know, they were very cozy and touchy feely and shit, you know, out in the open and stuff. And he gave this information to her, you know? And here we go all the dumpster fucking juice. Come November of the year 1986, Hella was almost ready to leave, okay, like, assuredly. Now, it was still business in u- as usual, because, you see, she'd already gone back to work, and since she had gone back to work, and she was a stewardess, and Richard was a pilot, as well as, like, a bullshit Barney Fife. There, I said it um like you know he was like a part-time cop as well as a full-time pilot and she had gone back to being a stewardess who was flying overseas the couple had employed an au pair so they had live-in help with the three small children so on november 18th 1986 hella had returned home At about 7 p.m. after working a super duper long flight from from Frankfurt, Germany. Hella had been dropped off at her home by a friend because the family au pair had the night off. Richard was at home with the children and the au pair was not expected home until like her shift started like we hours of the morning. So like approximately like 2 a.m. After spending some quality time with the children, Hella put the children to bed and attempted to wind down for the night. Instead, she and Richard began to argue. It's a, it's believed that during the fight, Richard bludgeoned Hella with his maglite flashlight. As if you know, and if you've ever been, if you know, if you're aware of like law enforcement, fire people that are like in fire departments and stuff like that. Those big heavy black flashlights, those super duper heavy grade ones. I love a good maglite. Like it, it really does hit like it, it, the sound of a maglite hitting a skull. It's horrifying. It sounds literally like you're dropping a watermelon on the ground. So he hit her, uh, he struck her at least twice. As hella lay on the bedroom floor bleeding to death the couple's au pair returned to the craft's home and retired for the rest of the night. So as if the night couldn't get any funkier, a snowstorm pummeled central Connecticut with ice and snow knocking out power lines and power in some areas for hours. Early the morning of November 19th, Richard woke his children and the au pair And he told them that he would be taking them to his sister's home in Westport. After dropping the children and the au pair off at his sister's home, he returned back to Newton to take care of the business of making hella disappear. So, records showed that Richard rented a wood chipper and a U-Haul truck and got to work. Also, on the seventeenth, so two days before this, he purchased a deep freezer. So there's that. And uh, so twice in the wee hours of the morning, a local snow plow driver saw a U-haul with a wood chipper like at the back of it in two separate locations. And keep in mind like this was a really bad storm. So there should not have been anybody out at 2 or 3.30 in the morning when he saw this particular U-Haul with a wood chipper in the back of it, you know, and he had seen a person wearing an orange coat come out because he had slowed down to see if the person needed assistance and the person came around and basically like shoot him away like I'm good Keep it moving. Nothing to see here, and then he saw him once again. So, anywho, as the days went by, Hella's friends and coworkers became nervous whenever punctual Hella failed to show up for her scheduled flight assignment. Crew members called the craft's res- residence, where Richard told them at first that Hella had been. In Denmark attending to her sick mother. He then changed the story saying that Hella had gone on holiday with a friend to the Canary Islands. Panicked, Hella's friends who had like started comparing notes noticed that nobody had made eyes with her nobody had heard from her nobody could get in touch with her Richard had said one thing then Richard had said another thing and the stories were not adding up but one thing did resonate with one particular friend she told her shortly before her death that if she were to come missing it was not an accident ooh foreboding so the friends notified the divorce attorney because these friends they understand that you know it's paramount that they get a hold of somebody who can try to find hella especially knowing that this divorce is looming so and he's he was violent as fuck so then the divorce attorney in turn notified the private investigator that Hella had hired to find out if Richard had been cheating on her. When private investigator Keith Mayo began looking into the possible disappearance of Hella, he first went to the Newton Police Department like he should have, and they brushed him aside, and he was not with it. So, not not one to give up, Keith began investigating on his own. So, let's see here there's an interview in particular that was extremely informative to him the crafts family au pair informed keith that the carpet in the master bedroom was new but after hella's disappearance she noticed a large dark spot on the carpet shortly thereafter richard started like ripping up the carpet She'd also observed that the brand new deep freezer that had been kept in the garage was now missing. So now it's December 1st, 1986, and Hella is finally formally reported missing. She's been gone since November 19th, and she's finally reported missing like weeks later, and this is bullshit. On December 11th, Richard was located at his part-time police officer job. And he was asked if he could come to the Newton Police Department to answer some questions. And at about 9.20 p.m., Richard arrived, and this is how the questioning went. Question. Richard, did you know that your wife hired a private investigator? No. No. Did you know that the PI had documented your relationship with a New Jersey woman? No. Why would your wife tell her friends that she was afraid for herself regarding serving you divorce papers and tell them to check on her if something happened? I cannot imagine her saying this. It is completely out of character for her to say this. So on November 18th, when Hella came home, when and why did she leave? Those answers are in my statement. Okay, so what is the story with your bedroom rug? Apparently you removed it or cut some pieces out of it. Can you explain this to me? All the rugs in the house are being removed and replaced. What was spilled on the rug in the bedroom? Kerosene. Did you cut pieces out of the rug? Yes, two feet at a time. It's easier to remove it that way. What did you do with the rug you took out of the bedroom? Dumped bedroom rug in the Newton landfill one week ago. It was blue in color. Why have you been telling everyone different things about Hella being missing? Like her mother being sick? I didn't want to say my wife was gone and I did not know where she was. Has Hella received any mail since she has been missing? Nope. She has gotten known letters since she left. She usually gets about two letters a week. Whatever the police asked, you know. Richard had an answer. They said that his demeanor seemed cooperative, yet guarded. Again, he was not caught in any outright lies, but everything was sus. They were more like half-truths, and they could smell bullshit from a mile away. Um, For... A man whose wife had suddenly and inexplicably vanished, Richard Crafts, seemed rather apathetic. He was released, and after providing cops with a brief one-page statement that was very, oh God, it was less than helpful. Detectives were left with, like, obviously more questions than answers, so they had to let him go. But they were becoming more and more convinced that whatever happened to Hella. Richard had absolutely had something to do with it. Back to Keith Mayo, who was super duper displeased with how the disappearance of Hella was being treated. Since like the first day that he had found out that she was missing, he immediately suspected Richard as being susp- responsible. You know, he met with various friends and consulted with them you know soliciting their advice and opinions on the case and after a review of the events surrounding hella's disappearance and richard's reaction to it they all agreed that he acted in a super sus manner they could not understand why richard would offer so many different explanations as to what happened to hella so keith decided that he needed you know, to collect evidence, to convince the police, who really did not seem all that jazzed about this case. When he learned that Richard had cut out pieces of his bedroom rug and discarded them at the local dump, he decided to search for them himself, thinking that he might be able to find blood evidence. So, with the help of the local trash pickup crew. Keith was able to ascertain that the Newton's garbage was deposited in the Canterbury dump about two and a half hours east of Newton. Newtown, Newton, Newtown, Newtown. Okay, so he recruited some helpers, and for several days, they searched through, oh gosh, mountains and mountains of trash at the dump, and they were knee-deep in household garbage when, you know, the team was just covered in funk and they were gagging and cursing. But they did succeed in locating a portion of rug that was nearly identical to the rug that was in the master bedroom of Richard and Hella's home. So Keith was sure that this was a missing piece to the rug that was in the home. He also saw that there were stains that appeared to be human blood. The rug was taken to the state police laboratory in Meriden. And that was, oh man, the forensics were led by renowned forensic scientist, Dr. Henry Lee. Does the name sound familiar? I think O.J. Simpson. Um, I believe they also said Lacey Peterson was another trial that was... High profile that he covered. So, in the meanwhile, the press was finally catching wind of this story about Hella and how she, you know, was the suburban housewife who had gone missing. On December 17th, the Danbury News Times published the first story on the case, and the headline was this Police seek missing Newtown woman. So at the point, at this point, you know, Hella was still being considered a missing person. Newtown Police Chief Lewis Marques told reporters that you know this is still a missing persons case right now, and we have no we have no reason to suspect any foul play. But Keith Mayo told the same reporter that. He didn't think that she had disappeared on her own accord. He also challenged the police when he said, quote, I'm concerned that they are going after this piecemeal. So the pressure was finally building and the Newtown police were being criticized because they were not acting as, you know, they felt like, you know, other people felt like they should have. And the state's attorney office wanted jurisdiction handed over to the state police. But the investigation received another setback when Dr. Lee reported that his findings on the rug samples from the dump quote, after four hours of backbreaking work carried out on the carpet None of the stains tested positive for blood. So, his dogged pursuit for evidence was shot down. However, he had another unanticipated result. It focused even more attention on the case, which, you know, at this point was like floundering. And so, Hella's friends who kept a nonstop campaign of calling the police for updates on this investigation. They also wanted results. And so the state's attorney's office decided that the investigation would be handled in total by the state police investigators. So the case gets turned over and detectives from the Western district major crimes unit begin to look deeper into Richard's activities immediately before Hella's disappearance. And this is when they found after pulling his credit card purchases and the phone records for the month prior that, okay, first of all, on his MasterCard, they found that on November 13th, Richard had purchased a large capacity Westinghouse freezer at an appliance store in Danbury. And he paid like $375 for it. Then, he picked it up at the store on November 17th. During that same billing cycle, detectives noticed that he rented some type of machinery at the Darien Rentals, which totaled $900. Surprise, surprise. It was the wood chipper and the U-Haul. So, On December 26th, while Richard and his three children were on vacation in Florida, Connecticut State Police searched the Crafts' home. The forensics inspection was carried out again by a renowned Dr. Henry Lee. While inspecting the master bedroom, they observed several parts of the bedroom carpet, the areas that had been cut out and removed. They tested that. There There was also a smear of blood on the side of the mattress, Upon digging into Richard's credit card activity, like as I said, they also noticed that there had been new bedding and sheets and comforters that were purchased, and yet the majority of these purchases were not found while they were searching the home. Also, a chainsaw receipt was discovered. It was only after the search of the craft's home for evidence of Hella and what had happened to her that the snowplow driver, Joseph Hine, told police about the U-Haul in Woodchipper that he saw by Lake Zoar on November 19th. So when the Connecticut State Police detectives went to check out the area, guess what they found? mm First they found some scraps of paper and an envelope that was addressed to Hella Crafts. They look a little bit further and they find, oh, this is so gross. All the dumpster juice. Okay. In the lake, they find this chainsaw. The chainsaw is still covered in blood And there is a substantial amount of human hair. 2,260, I believe, or something like that was the total count. Upon further investigation of that area, what was left of Hella was discovered. Teeth, fragments of cloth matching her favorite nightshirt, fingernails, bone chips, and human tissue. Now, while the serial number on the chainsaw that had been recovered had been filed down, they were able, using forensic science, they were able to pull up remnants of the number and match it. And guess what? The serial number on the chainsaw matched the serial number on the warranty card for the chainsaw that Richard Crafts owned. So, given what evidence they had, it was deduced that after striking Hella over the head at least two times, he placed her body inside the deep freezer until her body was completely frozen. So, he moves her body to the freezer. He gets the children and the au pair out of the home. Gets them over to his sister's house. Comes back home. When he gets back home, this is when... Richard uses the chainsaw to dismember his wife so that he can feed her remains through the wood chipper and into the U-Haul truck, where he then shoveled her remains onto, you know, basically the shoreline of this lake. After positively identifying Hella via dental work, A death certificate was issued on January 13, 1987, wherein Richard was immediately arrested for the murder of Hella. Hella's murder had become international news. Due to the publicity of this high-profile case, the trial was moved to New London and began in May 1988 but this forensic science-laden trial ended in a mistrial two months later after one juror voted not guilty before walking out and refusing to return. The second trial that proceeded in Norwalk in 1989 led to Richard being found guilty November 21st, 1989. On January 9, 1990, as Richard listened to the victim impact statements, his sister Karen, who had custody of his three children, asked the judge to impose the maximum sentence on her brother. Karen said, quote, I am concerned that Mr. Crafts has not public publicly nor privately demonstrated any remorse for the mu- for the murder of his wife. I believe he. He has paid lip service only to the concerns of his children. Richard said before his sentencing, quote, a great deal has been said about my apparent lack of emotion. Quote, he has ice water in his veins. Richard, 51, said before sentencing was imposed, quote, I have feelings like everyone else. The judge ruled that Richard served 50 years for the murder of Hella. Richard's conviction was the state's first murder conviction without a body. In January 2020, Richard was released into a halfway home. So, what had happened is a lot of shit. <clears throat> there's a lot to unwrap here isn't there what had happened is this <sighs> richard was not a nice person obviously richard had a lot of anger in him richard lashed out at hella but also, and I mean, this is not to, this is, this is not to shame the victim at all, but prior to Hella and Richard getting pregnant with their child in 1975, they met in 1969. So, okay. Yeah, it was damn near 1970 because it was the, the I think it was the end. Maybe was it was at the end. Maybe it was May. I don't fucking remember. Anyways, they met in 1969. By 1975, they're pregnant. They've been together for approximately five years and some change. And throughout this time, while she had everyone reminding her and telling her that she was better than the shitty behavior that she was putting up with, she did set the bar quite high for the amount of shit that she was willing to put up with from this man before they even were legally bound to one another. Um, And I don't know that he was physically abusive to her when they were dating before the pregnancy, before the marriage. But I mean, it sounded like it was more like they just didn't like him because of his playboy nature And again, even with that being said, she, she put up with a lot of shit. And he put her through the paces and he did whatever the hell he wanted to do to her. And I'm subject to believe, honestly, that he might've well, you know, they had said that she was very afraid to serve him divorce papers and all of this other stuff, but I feel like, you know, she'd come to terms that she'd obviously, their their marriage had exhausted itself. They had been married as long as they could possibly be, and she was taking the the steps to separate herself from him and, you know, be her own person and I think that there might have been just the the aspect of removing her from the picture altogether like oh you don't want to be here then now you no longer exist and because I mean like he kept going on as if nothing ever happened business as usual taking the children on vacation to Florida you know, going to work, giving bullshit statements, which leads me to this point. A lot of this shit was very premeditated because you can't tell me that you snapped the last minute. Because you purchased this deep freezer and I guarantee you it was not to procure turkeys for Thanksgiving dinner. Two, you know, a day, two days before, you, before the crime was committed. He waited until she was gone. I'm telling you what happened. She flew out. She probably had like a couple of flights or she had a day over in Germany from that flight to Frankfurt. It was it it was no such there's no such thing as a fucking quick turn when you're flying from one country, you know, from the United States to Europe. But nonetheless, he had enough time prior to her leaving to think about how he wanted to get rid of her body is what I'm getting at because he purchased he purchased the freezer on the 13th and scheduled the pickup on the 17th, knowing she would be home from her trip on the 18th. And then he rented the wood chipper and the U-Haul truck. He procured the chainsaw, got rid of the serial number on it. There are so many different levels of premeditation that or vomited on this. It doesn't matter if there was no body to be found. Everything screams you thought about this. Also, I find it slightly odd that, and not slightly, all the way odd. Hmm, maybe, okay, maybe just slightly. We'll go back to slightly. I find it slightly odd that as methodically as he planned out and facilitated the act of Murdering Hella disposing of the body dismembering and then further disposing of her remains as well as getting the kids out of the house with the au pair so that he had room to work. I find it kinda odd that it took the au pair and the kids coming back home and her saying Why is there a grapefruit size? dark spot on the carpet for him to even think that he needed to start cutting up chunks out of the carpet it's like cleaning up what he did to her wasn't even an afterthought until the au pair you know commented and even then it was a half-assed half-assed haphazard attempt to clean up whatever he, you know, had done by cutting up portions of the carpet. But your side of your mattress is bloody as fuck, bro. And they also said that, you know, when they were looking at the mattress, they could see that there was blood that when it was tested, it for sure was not menstrual blood but, you know, basically high velocity blood splatter, you know, it actively came from, you know, pumping blood veins and stuff, you know, veins and stuff like that. So there's so much fascinating information that was gleaned in that first episode of the Forensic Files. The OG, the gangster of them all. all, um, you know, you can find that episode on YouTube. Um, obviously, the movie Fargo was inspired by this mo- by this by this mortifying true crime event and there have been a lot of books that have been written about this as well <sighs> that is all I'm just so grossed out by the links that people will go to to do people dirty that I'm also not surprised either when I read these stories to be perfectly honest by this point but I'm still grossed out and it still hurts your feelings I'm Kimberly hey you guys this is the last episode for March three episodes for the third month of the year if you hadn't caught on March is my favorite month of the year uh let's get that beautiful outro music going and I will be back soon with another lesser known true crime story. Thanks again for listening. You guys have a great one.